This morning we're continuing in Nehemiah, and we're going to read from Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifice? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubbles, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, our Lord, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sabalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also our enemy said, before they know it is or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows and armour. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work, with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came. At that time I also said to the people, 
have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night. So they can serve as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. This is the word of the Lord. Everyone, it's good to see you. Is my, uh, my mic is on. I'm nice to see you, uh, although I can't see the people who are watching online. Um, hopefully the time will come when we won't have to broadcast our services as we do. We hope that that will be very soon. Anyway, we're following Nehemiah, the course of this great story of the building of the Great Walls of Jerusalem. Not China, but the Great Walls of Jerusalem. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll get stuck in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We praise you that it brings us life. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give us light by your Holy Spirit as we engage with it now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Apparently, implementing and leading change in any company is ranked as one of the most stressful things that anyone in management or leadership can do. It makes the daily grind and ordinary day-to-day running of the business pale into insignificance. Changing people's habits, their ways of doing things, their working environment, their approach to the working day can cause significant upset, resistance, and discord. It exposes the strength and the resolve of the boss and the board, how they're able to withstand challenge, to strategize, to think on their feet. It also reveals the character of the employees, just how flexible are they? What is their sight of the bigger picture? What are their skill sets and adaptability to brand new scenarios? Change is essential, risk is right. If you are a living being, you're always changing. No changing, no life. But not everyone sees it that way. Companies have imploded as a result of change. Political parties have died or at least had many a crisis without openness to change. Aren't we witnessing some of that at the moment? Change comes with a cost, of course. It tests everyone. But opposition to change also comes with its cost. And the way that opposition works, the methods, the tactics, even the psychology of those who oppose is nothing new at all. And we see it very clearly here in Nehemiah chapter 4. If you've been tracking the story with us over these few weeks, Nehemiah, a godly, righteous Jew, has been in distress because of the ruination of God's city. He is one of the returnees to the promised land after that second great moment in the life of the Jewish people. There was the exodus and then the exile. The exile this time out of God's promised land and the captivity of God's people by the enemy pagan nation, Babylon. Some have returned, but the city of Jerusalem had been razed to the ground. The previous book in the Bible before Nehemiah, the book of Ezra, dealt with the rebuilding of the temple. This book, Nehemiah, deals with the rebuilding of the city. More precisely, the rebuilding of the city's walls, its fortification, its sign of strength. So why a whole book dedicated to this restoration project? Is it just an ancient restoration documentary like Channel 4's Escape to the Chateau or BBC's 60-minute makeover? Why the focus on a city? You can understand the temple, but why the city? Well, it's to do fundamentally with the glory of God. A ruined city meant that the reputation of God lay in ruins. 
The surrounding nations who worshipped other gods laughed at the broken walls and the true and living God's reputation was in tatters. The broken walls signified vulnerability to enemies and thieves and bore testament to a previous history which was now destroyed the old glory days past. God's glory was lost amongst the nations and his people were a laughing stock. And of course, this city shows the weakness of God's people. And it was this distress which drove this ancient, godly, civil servant to rebuild, or at least lead the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. But not everyone agreed that this restoration project, this rebuilding, was a good idea. And that is the content of this chapter. You read of opposition from the enemies of God's people, and thus God himself. You also read of Nehemiah's godly and determined response. Opposition and response are the two big ideas in this chapter. So let's take a look and see the nature of the attack and Nehemiah's response. Let's read again verses 1 to 3. When Symbalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. Here are the first words of opposition in chapter 4. There's been some previously in chapter 3, like a haughtiness. Who does he think he is, Nehemiah, coming in and doing this? But this is a whole new tack, and it comes in the form of ridicule. Sanballat and Tobiah, both of whom were threatened by a strength in Jerusalem, led the first blast of opposition, and it was in the form of what? Laughing, mockery. Call into question the wisdom or the practical sense of those setting about their task. Have a laugh at their expense. Undermine through saying things like, look at you, you're overreaching yourselves. What competent skill and resource do you have making a job of this? It's impossible for you. Who do you think you are? What do you, a mere civil servant, an administrator, know about building walls? What do your friends know even? They have no skill nor any chance at all. You see, that's the psychological warfare waged at the start of any battle. That's the haka on the All Blacks rugby pitch. That's the saber-rattling of the hand-to-hand combatant. Try to beat your enemy before meeting them on a battlefield by beating them first in their mind. You're too small. You're too weak. You're too unskilled. You'll never do this. Sambalat and Tobiah tried to undermine the confidence of those who were setting about the rebuilding of God's city, the rebuilding of God's glory. Even a fox could skill and break apart your efforts. You're just pathetic. Sambalat's words are interesting. Sambalat's actions are interesting. Look at what he tries to do. He parades his army and associates, verse 2. He dismisses the Jews wholesale as feeble. He insults their devotion, almost as if he suggests, will they rebuild the walls by praying? By sacrificing. Will they offer sacrifices, he says? All effective opposition, useful taunts to damage the will of the builders. Why are we interested in a city? Why has God preserved this ancient book for us? 
Well, as the whole story of God's rescue plan unfolds in the Bible, it ends up in a city, a new Jerusalem in the book of Revelation. Not an earthly city or entity, but an eternal entity. The earthly entity, like the temple, pointed towards something else, God's glory and the place where his people are eternally secure. It is Satan's work to prevent the spread of the gospel, the building of Christ's church, and thus the building of this eternal city. So what is our building work today? Well, it is the work of building a structure full of living stones. That is new Christians. Building a church that is strong and secure for all, for God's glory. Sharing and preaching the gospel to the ends of the earth because we know that Christ will build his church. But does everyone welcome this endeavor? Applaud our attentions? Well, as you know and may have felt, certainly not. Ridicule and laughter are typical responses, aren't they? They'll say things like, well, this culture is too circular, secular and too atheistic to accept the gospel, to believe in Jesus. You don't have any good arguments anymore. Don't be ridiculous. You're too small, church. You're too weak. You're too insignificant. You're too unskilled, not clever enough. And after all, what do you have? Praying? How could you ever make any kind of impression or any kind of real impact? You're outdated. You're outmoded. You'll be outclassed by all of the other alternatives we hear people say. And that creeps into our psyche, doesn't it? How does Nehemiah respond? Does he let loose with comeback and retaliation, cleverer insults, more erudite remarks? Well, no, let's listen to verses 4 and 5. Have a look. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. This is a sudden prayer. It's almost as if Nehemiah is quoting himself word for word. He's back in the moment. The words prayed by him on that day, like we're back at that day with him. Does he pray for retaliation? Does he pray for his own glory, the builder's glory? Is he defensive? Isn't this the opposite of Jesus' saying, forgive your enemies? Look for a moment at what is at stake. The very glory of God. Nehemiah is incensed by their obvious opposition, not just to him, Nehemiah, but in reality to the true and the living God. These words sound like some of the Psalms, don't they? They're calling out for judgment against sin, for God to restore his glory, his honor. This isn't a prayer against their salvation, rather for God's justice. This was asking God to act, not for him to provide a nuclear bomb to obliterate them and to enable Nehemiah to take vengeance. I wonder, do we feel a similar sense of grief over the rejection of God and his honor? The unrestrained mocking of God and his gospel? Or are we incensed over the dying of churches in different places in our city and weep over the lack of gospel witness right across our city, country, and entire island? Maybe it's better for some of those churches to die 
because they've lost the gospel. But without the church, without a witness in that area, there will be no gospel life. What should that drive us to? To take up arms? Well, no. Prayer and the preaching of the gospel are our only weapons. And that is our mission. Our only response is to engage in both and weep for the sins of those who mockingly and scornfully oppose the work of God. Verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height for the people worked with all their heart. Verse 6 just states in such a matter-of-fact way that the wall is progressing, doesn't it? You see, Sambalat, Tobiah, we're getting there. Your insults are meaningless. Your taunts are weak. Your suggestion that it was impossible or futile is plain false. And that is the fact. Christ will build his church and nothing will cause that to stop. You'll notice that Nehemiah wasn't triumphalistic. He just let the work, the stones, speak for themselves. He let the structure do the talking. There was no need for him to trumpet his success. Just look, opponents, and you'll see the success of God. No matter the nay saying, the gospel will build as its builders work and struggle for God's glory. People will become Christians and grow in Christ, and nothing will stop it. Does that mean there will be 100% support even within God's people for new work? Absolutely not. And we'll see over these next weeks and over these next words and chapters that there is as much opposition within the people of God as there is without. There is discouragement and being overwhelmed within and without. Is this about being in the wrong side of history? For there's no such thing, really. It's all just history. Rather, it's about being on the wrong side of eternity where God will have built his church. These chapters are punctuated by statements about the success of the rebuilding project, noting its progress and it is always going in the right direction. The walls are climbing. But did this signal the end of the opposition? Was it enough to silence them? No, the opposition only increased, moving from words to war. Let's read verse 7 to 9. But when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Interestingly, the four groups mentioned represented a threat from the north, that is, Sambalat and the Samaritans, the Ammonites on the east, the Arabians on the south, the men of Ashdod on the west. They were hard-pressed on every side. And opposition, when it comes, does feel like an overwhelming thing being hit as if from every angle. This was a comprehensive physical threat against this work which Sambalat had constructed with his cronies. The book of Revelation makes clear that the opposition to God's people and God's work comes in two forms, words and violence. Revelation chapter 12, Revelation chapter 13 demonstrate that Satan deploys those who will spread false words about God. 
the false teachers present within the church to destroy the church, those who tell lies and teach false doctrines, distorting God and his truth. The other form of opposition is that of violence, the bloodshedding of God's people. Destroy what people believe and destroy the very people themselves. Those are the two forms of attack Satan deploys. So confusion, shed blood. By and large in the West, we see the sowing of confusion. False teaching and false teachers abound. There are those who turn the grace of God into a license for immorality. In other places, quite literally, there is the blood shedding of God's people. You'll know the stories. The beheading of Christian pastors. The crucifying of the 14-year-old son upside down of a pastor in the Middle East. The killing of Christians. A few years ago, I met Mark, who was an archdeacon in Nigeria. He was planting churches in Boko Haram-dominated villages in the north of the country. He would plant a church, people would become Christians, and they would, in response, raise the village to the ground, killing those who professed faith. One WhatsApp message I have on my phone says, God is at work amidst us, considering the circumstances surrounding us here, much more with the Boko Haram terrorist group in the Northeast. They are killing the herdsmen who converted to Christ and have been Muslim. Nothing deters this brother, an incredible servant of Christ. It's all very real. What is Nehemiah's response to this physical threat of violence? Well, his response will irritate both the pietist and the activist. There are two possible responses, aren't they? The pietist will say, let's call a prayer meeting in the midst of all of this. That's all we need. God will fix it. We don't need to do anything. The activist will say, let's sharpen our swords. Let's get going. Let's tackle this ourselves and just do something. In reality, Nehemiah models for us the right response to opposition. Not an either or, but a both and. You'll see from that last verse we read, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. We pray because God is sovereign and we take action, making decisions, organizing and working because he is sovereign and he does use people and us as his means. We pray and we do. We pray and we work. The two aren't opposites. The two are necessary. They run together. So we do ministry and we pray. We pray and we preach. Nehemiah's response was prayer and precaution, trust and good management. He trusted God, but he was also very aware of the dangers and took the necessary precautions. To be sure, the dangers were real, and the next verses will show us that. Verse 10. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. 
after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, remember he's addressing the bosses, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. Here's the other form of opposition, discouragement and fear. Internal problems can be as serious as the external ones and indeed even a greater threat. The people were becoming discouraged. The words of verse 10 are almost a song, like a, a navy laborer's song, sung by the discouraged laborers. They had to face removals of rubbish. They felt overwhelmed. Verse 11, the rumors of the possible violent opposition was bringing demoralization. Just the rumors were enough to dishearten. There was no reality to it. There were just rumors. Oh, it'll never work. There's too much to do, they think. There are too many people within who oppose this action of rebuilding the walls that we will not get the traction. There are people who are threatening to leave, even withdraw their support. We are fearful. Nehemiah, this project of yours is doomed. Well, what does he say back to them? Verse 15. Remember the Lord. He is great. Do not fear. Interesting, isn't it, that the mere knowledge of the plot to stop the work with violence was enough to thwart that violence. God, in his sovereignty, has used the rumors and discovery of the action to dispel the actual threat. Word had seeped out, so that stopped that kind of four points of the compass action against God's people. The very thing that might have stopped the wall's progress, bringing discouragement to God's people, was the very thing that thwarted the wicked plot of the universal, violent opposition to God's work. You see, God is unstoppable in his mission for his glory. So the walls are progressing. Nehemiah, the faithful rebuilder, leads his workforce in prayer and the setting, the establishment, the holding of a guard. Opposition, though intense, and coming from every angle, both within and without the workforce, isn't enough to stop the work. You see, risk for the sake of the gospel is right. Praise God that he has engaged us in his mission. Praise God that despite opposition coming in its various types from outside and from within inside, will not stop the work of the gospel spreading across Belfast, even to the ends of the earth. Praise God for his love, for his message, for his son, our Savior and Lord, and his salvation and his building of a people who will dwell in the heavenly city and that that will not be stopped by anything no matter how insidious, violent, apparently great. Praise God. We know the stories, don't we, of China, where government lockdown 
on the spread of Christianity over these last number of decades has actually caused the gospel to spread even more. How annoying that is to the authorities. Clamp down, more spread. Clamp down, more spread. It seems as if the Christians in places like China, other places, are defeated. But they're not. For the gospel still spreads. Praise God for his building of his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We give you thanks for the building of your people. We praise you that Nehemiah has modeled godly response to opposition, godly leadership in the midst of significant opposition for your glory, for the honor of your name. Lord, we pray that we would so love your name and so love your honor and so love your glory that we will do anything for the sake of the gospel to bring it to a lost and dying city, island, and world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.